A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On today's episode of the Game Podcast from The Times... Manchester United put a huge dent in Tottenham's shrinking Champions League hopes. Fergie's right, the refs are not always brilliant. Leeds catch Manchester City with the old rope-a-dope, but what's next for the club? And who will make it into the championship playoffs with a handful of games remaining? All of that and more on today's episode of The Game From The Times. To help me through it all, Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. How are you guys? Very well, thanks. Cheers, Bread is bread. Cheese is cheese, remember? (laughs) (laughs) We'll come to some of the post-match witterings from uh, Jose Mourinho in a moment. Alison, Gregor, Matt, I did want to start by asking you, it was a... a an intriguing weekend of Premier League football, lots going on, various departments. What was your big takeaway, Gregor, I'll start with you, from the football you saw this weekend? I think really... The top four race is impossible to call. West Ham uh, beating Leicester City, Liverpool finding something from somewhere, Chelsea looking probably the best of we've seen them going forward. It's just, it's going to be impossible to call, I think. But um, very exciting for the running. Um, And I'd I'd love to see one of West Ham or Leicester fit in, but it it just made me look, think back to when we had this discussion probably about a month ago and I called Liverpool and Chelsea to make it and I still think that ultimately despite despite these teams having kind of you know West Ham having their best season in in decades I just my feeling is it might still end up being the the teams you expect in there at the end. We've been asked now uh, as members of the Football Writers Association to start thinking about who our player of the season is and I think this is going to be a Tough one. And I think you could, I just made, the weekend's action made me think, why not Jesse Lingard? I'm not saying I'm going to vote for him. I'm just saying, if you want a story of, that has a narrative arc, you know, a player that was almost a laughing stock now cannot stop being um, so, so influential. And I can't help thinking if West Ham were to do it, that would be the remarkable story of the season, would it not? And they would do it because they were very astute in plucking a player who was unhappy and and just giving him a chance to shine. So I was really sort of, I keep thinking, oh, you know, he's going to, I don't know, opposition players are going to suss him out or he's going to lose that exuberance. But he plays every game like it's his first game and his last game, if you see what I mean. He plays like... I have to prove something today. And he does it with a smile on his face as well. It's quite incredible, really. Can't you do a special category this year? The Jordan Henderson Award for nothing to something to goes to Jesse Lingard. That might work, no? 
<laughs> we don't do that, sadly. But <laughs> I mean, it. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if, if uh, Matt, do you think do you think you would even contemplate him being a player of the season if West Ham made fourth? Ooh, I, th- I mean, I think it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. And, and if they te- make top four, then I think David Moyes has to be um, uh, manager of the season, doesn't he? So, you know, I think there'll be, you know, there won't be any lack of prizes for them. Um, but yeah, for half a season, I mean, I think it's a great question just because I think this year, you know, there's a chance that, you know, we could end up, there's the in- infamous year of, of 99 when um, David Ginola won um, won the award from the players and the writers um, and Manchester United fans uh, may, may remember they happened to win a treble that year so um, <laughs> yeah, that, that went down like a sack of whatever with Alex <laughs> Ferguson um, who banned his players from even going to the PFA awards and there's that risk of you know Man City are on course potentially for a treble potentially for a quadruple and yet their vote could be split isn't it you know you could have some people will be saying Diaz has been their best player some people will say well De Bruyne you know is maybe not at his best season but is the best footballer in the Premier League you, you could easily you know Gundogan, Gundogan exactly has you know scored all those goals so you could see some sort of strange year where the City vote gets split and and a dark horse appears and you know, Bruno Fernandes, I'm sure, has, has been in a lot of people's thoughts. But, you know, there are others. So I think it could be a, a weird year for that award. Um, so, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I luckily, they've put back, um, in 99, one of the sort of problems was that pre-digital, um, you know, we were still sending things by pigeon in those days. We had to, um, <laughs> you know, we had to vote stupidly early, whereas now we can at least uh, leave it. Uh, another month and hopefully by then you know someone will have put together a, such a sort of compelling case that they can't be ignored what was your main takeaway from the weekend then Matt wouldn't necessarily main takeaway but one thing I did enjoy just because he causes such arguments and, and through them all I, one thing I've never ever thought is that Paul Pogba is not a brilliant footballer you know there's been a lot of understandable you know vexation about you know his consistency or whether he's putting in enough or whether he wants to get away or his agent being a I'll, again I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll avoid the language but one thing i just thought through or throughout all is that you know inside paul bogba is a top class you know and entertaining footballer um and i just thought some of his touches yesterday drab drab awful start to the game but I, i'm glad i stuck with it because yeah some of his you know including the way he was involved in the third goal were just a, a delight, you know, and there's a nutmeg here and something else there. And yeah, I just, you know, I think we all want to see top players play, you know, to their potential. And um, yeah, it was just good to see some of those flashes yesterday. Well, you bring us nicely to our first topic, Matt, because yesterday afternoon at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, aside from the refereeing issues, there was an intriguing match itself. Uh, Spurs won Manchester United three. It's a result that leaves Spurs six points off fourth place. And my early season hot take lying in tatters, frankly. Um, before we get to the war of words at the end of the game, Matt, you, you did raise an excellent point about Paul Pogba's performance. He was deployed basically on, on the left-hand side as part of the front three. Marcus Rashford moved to the right-hand side. Further up the pitch, closer to the penalty area, we, we almost saw the best of Paul Pogba. Um, Gregor, just quickly on that, I know Matt's mentioned his elegant performance, but is that where you could see him playing in the future? Yeah, I think that... The the fact that he can kind of drift inside from there, you know, find pockets of space, I think that probably is 
Fernandez is always going to be the man centrally, and I think it is it is often better to have someone whose kind of natural inclination is to is to drift in. Certainly, Paul Pogba likes to be likes to be playing more centrally if he can. He's not going to play out and out wide on the left. So some of his touches, his little even for the the first goal that was that was called that was uh, chopped off, his little kind of drag back and nutmeg. It was there were some exquisite touches. Manchester United in the second half was probably the best of. Best I can remember seeing them play in a long, long time. The whole conversation about why they always need to seem to go have to go behind to to produce those levels of of, uh, of performance. But they were they were by far and away the best team in the second half, really dominant. And Paul Pogba was was at the heart of a lot of their their best play. Absolutely, Matt. Was it more Manchester United's magnificence or Spurs just being total Spurs? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, there's, there is undoubtedly a pattern we've seen in, in Spurs, hasn't there, of of losing leads and of retreat and of caution that invites the other team on. I mean, it's you know we've seen you know plenty of teams do it and and worse teams than than Man United do it against them. So, you know, there is a pattern there that they're they're um, inviting inviting teams to grow in confidence against them while they they seem to 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 shrink a bit and that's you know that's that's a huge problem i don't think you know sometimes Mourinho's substitutions have not helped um there's been a you know tone of of caution the uh, spurs fans would probably call it negativity um to them and yeah i think you know psychologically the same way that United seem to sort of psychologically, as Gregor says, get their sort of kick somehow out of sort of, you know, needing to fall behind and get energised. Spurs psychologically seem to have, have, um, yeah, as it's a, re- you know, this was not a one-off, is it? It's a repeat pattern. It's funny because Jose Mourinho was asked that specific question by radio broadcasters, I think. And he said, my side do not have a psychological problem. But Alison he refused to criticise his players as well. He said, you know, if I say anything about them, it'll be basically blown out of all proportion. I think that comes after his recent comments about uh, same coach, different players, and exactly how that was um, taken by the, the footballing public. Um, but, but I think, you know, part of all of this isn't just what might be perceived as negativity. It is quality of his squad. Is it at the point that you think he might need to overhaul the squad at Tottenham if they are to be successful? It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I don't, I think any club in the world would think they were blessed if they had Harry Kane and Son together. You just would. And that surely has to be the basis for something. But I was watching the game quite closely and I thought initially I might be writing about the Spurs defence. Um, you know, yet another pairing, Rodon and Dyer. They hadn't, they, it was a second pairing and a four together. You can't think, well, where's, this, where's this going? You know, is he, it's a bit late in the season to start thinking, what's my best defence? And um, I just thought, I just thought they were, they were very weak, very um, outclassed. It was as though they hadn't either been prepared for what sort of movement Man United. I mean, I think Man United's movement is the thing about them that is incredibly impressive. It's not just Pogba, it's all of them. They have great, classy movement. And Dyer was like sort of three weeks behind it. It was just like, like you know, it's like that annoying person in the pub who, who you know, you're all watching Line of Duty and he's, you know, three series back and wants to know what's going on because he, he didn't seem to be with it at all. And, and, and the, the sort of moves he made to try and stop a, an attack were a few seconds too late 
you know, he was sort of he was sort of belly bumping players when the, the ball had gone. It was just quite ridiculous. And I mean, I just I just I'm not sure he is a centre back. I know he was told to decide what he wanted to be, but I don't think he is a high level centre back. So I think yes, he does need to if he's if he's allowed to and given money to, which he won't be. He, he should you know re- rethink how that defence operates definitely. But, but going forward, there's a lot. It's a lot to be jealous of at Spurs. It's not all rubbish, is it? I mean, what I'm trying to say is bread is bread. That's what I'm actually trying to say. Still coming back to the fact that every time they go in the lead, they seem to still, despite all that, despite not having the players good enough to hold on to a lead, to regress and to kind of try and try and sit. Well, they sit deeper, and whether that's psychological or not, it keeps happening. I think Sky Sports showed a statistic where it was their average share of the ball was went from something in the 50s to 37 percent when they took the lead. So every time they take the lead, they let the other, the other team have the ball and they're not good enough to soak up the pressure. So th- that's been a, a pattern we've seen all season. And I, I think really, no matter what Jose says, that's got to lie with him. Jose has now lost 10 league games for the first time in a season, uh, a league season, of course, as a manager. Matt, how do you think he currently measures up against his replacement at Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? who I think deserves praise after yesterday's performance. The fact is that Solskjaer is is doing slightly better than expected. I mean, Johnny Norcroft, I thought, wrote a, you know, a, fair, a fair and decent assessment of, of it all in the Sunday Times um, yesterday, where he talked about the average points difference that United have been behind um behind the league uh winners over since Ferguson left I mean it was just, it was a frightening statistic I think it was at 20 odd um 23 20, 20, yeah. 23 points yeah uh average per season yeah just to, I mean there isn't a better yeah, illustration of just how far United have fallen you know back from those years those decades when you know we just assumed they were going to be in the mix and now under under Solskjaer you know you're looking at 11 points so there's you know, there's been a halving of that gap and, and Johnny quite rightly raised the question of sort of is that half full or half empty and, and sort of fell down on the, the glass half full in that at least it's closer. Um, and I think that's that was a decent sort of, you know, not, not to get wildly excited about it, not to suddenly think that United are equipped to win the Premier League or even contest the Champions League, but they've taken some small steps in the right direction. Um, you know, but still a still a lot to do. I, I hope that doesn't sound too sort of grudging. But I think that's that's for, for a club of United's expectations. That's a that was a fair analysis. Well, you've totally ruined my next question to Alison, which was going to be: Are Manchester United going to be credible contenders for the Premier League next season? I'll ask her to to answer it anyway. But you've 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 rained on my parade. <laughs> <laughs> if I had the talent, I would now break into a Barbara Streisand rendition, but I don't. Um, <laughs> But I urge you all to listen to her belt out, Rain on My Press. It's just <laughs> amazing. And I often sing it in the shower, but I'm not doing it. Um, I, it's, well, it, I don't know. I don't know here because I think after that was, that was, that was an excellent second half performance from United. And there's a danger every time we do these discussions to just think about what you've just seen rather than the bigger picture. I do. I agree. I think there is, they're definitely on a good trajectory. I've always backed Solskjaer and I think it might be one of those cases where he needs longer than another year even. It seems to be, uh, he's not, he hasn't been one of those managers that has got to grips as quickly as you would like for it. 
because it's such a big club with big expectations. But I like the way he's stuck at it. I like his demeanour. I like the way he isn't... I like the way he can juggle players that have come through the United youth system and the big stars as well. And he doesn't seem to be... There don't, there don't seem to be too many repercussions. He seems to have ridden the, the Pogba storm, if you like. He seems to have got him on side to accept that it's a team game. And I think if you think about the bigger picture, there are lots of things going on at Man United that could have destroyed Solskjaer. I think a lot of fans hated him or rather didn't think he was good enough. And he was pigeonholed as someone that could come in and just make the mood better after Mourinho's misery. But he's more, I think he is more than that. But I think he has to solve this issue of coming into action when when the, the odds are against them. I mean, the, the, a real progress next year would be if Man United started games the way they started the second half against Spurs, if they were like that all the way through. And if they were, then they could be title contenders because if they were to play like that for 90 minutes every match, then they would be more or less unstoppable. I still think, I mean, obviously, I mean, Alice is right as well. You know, in the wider context, there is the thing of just who you're up against. And obviously, if, you know, if City by... Harland and or Grealish then you know who's who's going to not think that's going to put potentially an extra sort of 10 you know uh, a lot of goals and a lot of points for them so there is a there is a question of keeping up with the with the Joneses isn't there and and, and I think you know United definitely are a, probably a major you know top class centre half straight into the first 11 type centre half and potentially you know base of midfield player away from being a top top team a couple of those big signings at the very least to get absolutely spot on to get the type of player that is going to improve you from the minute they arrive I still think that there would still be a question mark I think they're making progress but it would take a seismic implosion the like like of which we've seen from Liverpool this season by Manchester City for them still to bridge that gulf I don't think we're talking about signing a centre half and a centre forward like Haaland I still think they ultimately are not going to dominate football matches in the way that Manchester City do and that's because they don't have Pep Guardiola, who's like a coach who's might go down as one of the best there's ever been. So Ollie, Ollie's making progress. He deserves credit, particularly because of the cycle that we've talked about so often. It must be pretty wearing and hard to kind of to cope with because there's huge pressure on him, and there is progress being made. But I don't think it's just like a few signings away from bridging the gap. I think it would take a disaster on, this, on the part of, of Manchester City for them to do it. Let's move on then, uh, inspired by the game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, to officiating, not VAR, officiating, uh, because technology and the system of technology in football wasn't really responsible for coming to the conclusion that Scott McTominay had fouled Hummingson in the build-up to a disallowed Manchester United goal with a hand to the face, or elsewhere this weekend that Fernandinho didn't deserve a red card for a cynical takedown of Rafinha as Manchester City lost to Leeds, or that James Tarkovsky hadn't fouled Sean Longstaff by kicking him in the head as Burnley were beaten by Newcastle. I mean, subjective decisions that left a host of managers, players, pundits and fans in total disbelief and now scratching their heads over what the rules are, frankly. Um, Gregor, is this the worst the officiating has been that you can remember? <laughs> yes, but I'm not, you know, we've spoken about this before. I don't, I, I, I don't envy referees the situation they're in just now do you know when he was told to go over to watch the the incident the McTominay incident the referee was told to go over you just think to yourself he must have been thinking oh my god I've got <laughs> and then when he's watching it and it's in kind of 
the thoughts are going through his mind. Now, they're not purely what's happening in this incident. It's got to be what is the reaction going to be to my decision, you know, having watched this incident. So it's a, it's a nightmare scenario for referees just now. But having said that, you know, I can't see how he came to the to the decision that that was, that was a foul. And everything's just poured off over in such microscopic kind of analysis now that it's... it's uh, Did you need a microscope for that? Let's be no, honest. But it doesn't matter whether you need it or not. You get it. You know, he what he's seeing is not what, what happened in the in in the match in real time. He's seeing it slow down and he's not seeing the... He's looking at the, the arm flail and despite Son having tried to grab him. And it's... I, and even even the other decisions, I personally, I don't, I don't really think Tarkovsky's should have been a foul. Come on, it's a high boot. He's caught the player in the head. It's but six there, foot off the ground. It's the the definition th- of dangerous play. There are things now that defenders are. It's impossible to defend if you can if you can't try and clear a ball. Kick someone in the head. Dangerous play has always been there. High so foot has always score. been there. Well, what's a high foot, Gregor? His alternative is letting the player score. No, 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 no. no. He can. He he he's allowed to put his foot that high in the air, but he's going to get penalised if he does it. It's part of the rules of the game. It's like saying, well, he, he could have saved it with his hands. You know, what's he meant to do? Just let him score. Well, well yeah, he, he could have blocked it with his hands as well, but he would have been penalised because it's outside of the rules. And yeah, he's he, allowed to put his foot there, but it's it's outside of the rules. It's high. It's a high foot. It's dangerous play. He's caught someone. He's caught him in the face. And it's not like the head was lowered to that point. His foot is very high. That is the, that's why the rule is there, Gregor. Yeah, but all I'm saying is, as a defender, if you have a choice between kicking a ball that is, a, that is, that is high and letting somebody score, there is no decision to be made. So that is part, being part of parcel of defending for, forever. And we're now asking defenders to not make tackles or to let someone score a goal. That's ridiculous. And it, No, it, I'm just saying know, that if he does it, he's going to be penalised for it. But so the alternative is to let him score a goal. That's what you're saying. No, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm not. What do you, what do you, I, I don't understand what you think I'm trying to say. All I'm saying is, if you raise your foot to that height and you catch a player in the head, it's a foul. That's all I'm saying. Guarantee penalty or let him score a goal. <laughs> Can I, can no, I play I'm, I'm not criticising James Tarkovsky for trying to kick the ball. I'm, I'm, I'm criticising the official for not giving a, a blatant decision. If it's not breaking all the conventions of, of podcasting to say I can see both sides of the argument. Um, it is. Uh, but the, uh, I, I'll play mediator on this. I, you know, I feel sorry for Tarkovsky in the sense of he is hooking, you know, he is, as Gregor says, he has made an instinctive decision with no intention to be dangerous, with no intention to kick anyone with a head. Because on the turn of, as well. Yeah, on the turn, he's not. He's actually even half, probably not even aware that there's a head about to appear there. He just sees a, a, a high ball that he's trying to hook away. I think it's one of those classic ones where everyone is damned if you know the referee is. You know, it's the classic. You, you can see that you've seen those given. Um, it is by one def- by a strict interpretation of the rules. Hugh, you're right. It is a ball, a ball that is high, raised foot. Therefore, it it becomes dangerous. But I mean, I think, you know, I think, uh, I feel, you know, there's a sort of half an expectation that it would be given, but you you can do that and feel sorry for Tarkovsky, who is simply trying to play the ball and and not even thinking about the man. What would be the difference? What would the difference if, if Tarkovsky had been trying to sit in the other box, been trying to scissor kick an amazing goal? Would you say, oh no, he's not allowed to try that. But we see those given as fouls all the time. Someone tries a scissor kick they miss the ball. They connect with the player. It's a foul. It, it, I, of course, it is. I'm not saying that players should never try and kick the ball 
in a high position. What I'm saying is if you try and kick the ball in a high position, your foot will be high. If your foot is high and you catch a player six foot off the ground, a free kick should be awarded. Those are the rules. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that players won't make motions in that in that area. It's like me saying I don't think players should should try and kick the ball at ground level in case they make a foul. No, I'm not I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if you kick a ball at ground level, you miss the ball and you get the player. It's usually a foul. It doesn't matter if the ball's six foot or not in the air either. So I couldn't believe that that was not given as a free kick. And if that was on the halfway line, it would have been. I, I actually, to be honest, with the VAR, I've got, I've got, this was one of the ones that made me think, what are the rules? What are the rules? Because I'm not saying James Tarkovsky meant it. I don't think he did. He couldn't see the player coming. But none of those things matter if you kick someone in the head at six foot in the air. It, it, in, intent doesn't matter. I wasn't saying send him off. I wasn't even saying give him a yellow card. I didn't think he saw it, the player coming. But that doesn't mean it's not a foul. The only reason I brought it up was to say that, look, we're having this conversation now and referees need to make these decisions. And the kind of and and the VAR and the, the video assistant referees do as well need to make these decisions and some and they are not all black and white and there all there is also this kind of the whole discussion about it looks so different when it's slowed down in kind of you know frame by frame slow motion replays it looks very different and and then there's a whole new other conversation about the fact that as you say you're saying now that. You know, I think football is a dangerous game. I even I even looked at Liam Cooper's, and I know I don't want to get into another one, but again, Liam Cooper, the ball was bouncing, and the ball rose to that height. And if he wanted to make the tackle, that's the only way. That's the only height he, at which he could make the tackle. I understand he followed through, and he made. You know, it was, it was a dangerous, reckless challenge. I could see why that one would be given as a red card. But this is also a new a new direction of travel in in officiating. It's like you can win the ball, but if there's any danger posed to the opponent then it should be a red card or a foul. That's new as well. So I'll throw all those things into the mix. And yes, you've got a bit of a, a crisis of officiated, officiating, undoubtedly. Alison, do you know what the rules are? Isn't the crisis that in the old days, there'd be a decision that we weren't sure about, but we just say, well, you know, the referee, was in, yeah. the referee was there. He's the one in the middle of it. He can see just how dangerous something really is in real time, given the conditions on the pitch, where the players are, the mood of the game. We might not agree, but we're not going to watch it a hundred times. He's not going to be asked to watch it again. There's no one in his ear telling him if he's made a mistake or not. Because we've got this review system, we can all we can all pile in and have an opinion now. And I think I think that really does mean referees have nowhere to go. Absolutely nowhere to go. They they there'll always be someone that disagrees and all this, it's just, it's just, it's created quite a toxic atmosphere for refereeing. I think VAR was supposed to save the, the, the profession of refereeing. I now can't imagine anyone wanting to go into refereeing because it just looks like a horrible place to be. It's interesting on that, the toxic as well, of, of just, you know, I'm not going to dispute the VAR's created complications, disputes everywhere. But I mean, I saw, I don't know if you saw the tweet from um, Grant Wilde, the, you know, um, yeah, pretty esteemed American journalist, but he put out just curious to know why there's so much more anger in the Premier League than in other leagues around this. And I, you know, I think in, in my, from what I understand, that is the case. I mean, last time I did a piece about this VAR, there was, you know, speaking to, I spoke to journalists from all the other major leagues. And they said, yeah, there's this bit of dissent and there's that bit of controversy and there's that bit of confusion and we're not quite sure about this. It's, you know, there's definitely glitches, definitely the odd, you know, 
what were they thinking moment because that's football. Um, but we do seem to be getting much more vexatious about it in, in this league. Uh, yeah, is that us? Is that, you know, is, is it because our referees, you know, we've been saying our referees uh the worst ever since time began. I mean, that's just the sort of, you know, that, that, you know, that I, I'm sure if we go through the cuts, I could find you that type of claim said every decade for the last hundred years. You know, that's, you know, I'm still waiting for someone to say how they're going to get better. But at the same time, I'm not going to dispute this. Yes, let's be realistic about it. I think there is a, maybe whether it's a crisis of confidence, but certainly a, a massive wobble in confidence um, among them. I think that's the that's the bigger thing. I don't think they're suddenly the worst crop that were ever born. I just think they're trying to cope with so many changes to to tweaks to interpretations, if not to the laws themselves. Trying to cope with so much second guessing, and they're second guessing themselves now. I think that's that's the problem. I do believe it's the pursuit of perfection in refereeing, and sort of the PGMOL basically saying this is going to revolutionize things with VAR and we're going to get as close to, to uh, and, and they come out, don't they? And then they say, look, you know, 97% of decisions were correct this season. That's improved from 95% the season before and stuff like that. And I, I think, I think possibly that is the issue. You know, you go over to the screen and you're asked to become perfect when you're at the screen, as opposed to when you're in the middle of the pitch where no, there is sort of no expectation of perfection. And I, but I do believe that has led to, I, or maybe I agree with you on that, Matt, um, the idea that the referees look at the video and then can't make a simple decision. And that's what is enraging people. In other countries, I, I'm not sure if the most simple of decisions are the ones that they're arguing about or whether it's the more complicated ones. If the referee goes over to the screen and looks at an extremely difficult call to make and then comes up with the wrong answer for what most football watchers or fans would think, then you almost say, well, it was a really, really tough one. But if they go over to the screen and they look at McTominay or Tarkovsky, for that matter, um, and they still can't make the decision, then there's an issue because the rules are around those two. All right, let's put it this way. The rules on Tarkovsky are clear. We can argue about it. But if we want to if we want to look at the rule book, that's a foul. OK, Scott McTominay could easily be a foul. It's a foul to throw your arm into a player's face and make contact as well. Officially, that is a foul. But that one has the nuance of, well, Son Heung-min, you know, clawed out at him a little bit. That's an instinctive reaction from a footballer that's trying to push away from a defender. That was a little bit of football nuance, I think. And maybe a lot of people would look on and say, that's why we need referees who have played the game. Or that's why we need ex-players in the in Stockley Park looking at the VAR. Um, but I still think if that, that it's pretty clear on those two, at least, Um that they weren't complicated decisions. I, I don't. I truly don't believe they were complicated decisions. And I think it's a major issue if officials don't get the easiest of decisions correct. But the managers all came out at the end of it, didn't they? And they all said, I don't know. I don't know. Jose Mourinho, I don't know what's going on anymore. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I don't know. You guys are going to have to tell me what are the rules. But then I wouldn't, you know, if we're going to... You know, clearly we're going to listen to managers. Clearly, you know, a lot of them have been immersed in the game for a lot of time and their they're same matters. But, I mean, there's nothing more self-serving than a manager straight after a football match, is there? So, uh, I, I think we have to be, definitely have to bear that in mind. But, I mean, didn't the fact that you and, you know, the fact that you and Gregor just had that, you know, 10 minutes, 10 minutes where you could still be, you could be arguing about this for the next three yeah, weeks and you still, you, mute, you, still, <laughs> you still wouldn't agree on it. 
So that just shows it isn't. A it does. Decision. It does. Yeah, absolutely. It was a simple decision. He is a former <laughs> defender and former footballer. He couldn't be more biased on this. I am a journalist. I'm objective. I'm, I'm taking a look at it. And I've seen the situation and it's been very easy to call looking at the rules and applying it to a certain situation. That's all I'm saying. That is all I'm saying. Just finally on this, Gregor, though, um, you know, EFL watchers will say football is better without VAR. You watch a lot of, of EFL is it? The spectacle is, yeah. I mean, then obviously when you, you see the absolute howlers uh, and you think, oh, that would have been so easy to correct, then, you know, you have a different <laughs> a different slant on things. But personally, I'm, I am i don't think we want to start this conversation again, particularly with, with Matt on, but um, I, I would <laughs> rather it was, it, it was completely thrown in the bin because I don't think there is ever going to be a, a scenario where you can say, we'll just leave those those little minor incidents, you know, we can let them slide and hold it for the for the big clangers or for, you know, I just don't think there's a world where we can let, if you have the technology there, you can let anything slide, any errors or perceived errors slide. So in that case, the spectacle is being, is being ruined. And we're also realizing that it's impossible to, to come to the, to come to the decision that everyone agrees on, even on the small things. So throw it in a bin. It's an absolute joy to watch a game where there's no VAR. You can celebrate a goal without having to look over your shoulder or feel self-conscious about it. You can, you can just get on with it and you just know that it, it, the game will flow and there will be minor injustices, but so what? It's, it's, it's proper football again. It's been an absolute disaster, VAR. You guys have got me thinking about planning a VAR special for the summer. Let's get the officials on. Let's get them to answer some of the questions. <laughs> uh, it will be a three-hour bumper edition, I'm sure. Um, look, while we're mentioning the fact that uh, James Tarkovsky clearly fouled Sean Longstaff, the good news is it didn't affect the result. Um, I should have mentioned my takeaway from the weekend a little bit earlier on. It is Newcastle United. Six points clear of the drop. Only one defeat in five for them. They've also got a game in hand over Fulham beneath them. I think that's it for Fulham. That was my takeaway for the weekend. They are going to join West Brom and Sheffield United going down to the championship next season and some credit, I think, for Steve Bruce as well uh, after the weekend. A massively important win for them, although still some way to go to make sure uh, they survive. Uh, up next, we'll be talking about one of the big results of the weekend. It came for Leeds United. Not just the result, though. What is next for the club as it's clear they will be staying in the Premier League? After that, we will take a look at the championship playoff picture. But remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. Make sure it's five stars, obviously. Uh, you can also sign up today for more of our award-winning journalism by getting a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. You can get it on all of your devices. If you take that choice, to sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Leeds United stunned fans at the weekend in the Premier League and reminded everyone why you never put the Saturday lunchtime game in your accumulator with a smash and grab 2-1 win over the Premier League leaders Manchester City. Two shots, two goals, both of them from Stuart Dallas. Compare that though with Manchester City's 29 shots in the game. But it's got us thinking about Leeds United. We've spoken about them towards the start of the season. Some of you Leeds fans not too happy with us, but they have cast all doubters aside. They attempt their level on points with Arsenal in the Premier League. They are going to be safe, but they do have some big decisions to make. Reports manager Marcelo Bielsa is on the verge of signing a new two-year deal. But where should a club that's been huge in the history of English football be aiming for next? Alison, if you were at Leeds United, what would the five-year plan be? Oh, I think it's a really tricky one, Hugh, because they all want Bielsa to stay and he doesn't sign two years deals so if he does they'll be incredibly grateful and it will be heralded as the best relationship in the Premier League and aren't we lucky and we can build for the future but he doesn't he's not going well he's famously somebody who sticks to what he likes to do so he's not going to sign or ask to have large amounts of money to sign big names he's going to maintain the current philosophy and I don't, I don't know that it can get them better than 10th, really. I just, I, I think a number of factors have gone into this season. Um, I, I'll, I'll admit I was a doubter at the start. I couldn't see how starting a campaign where, you know, it was going to be an, particularly because of the pandemic, a particularly intense campaign with very little rest, very little proper preparation, how the intensity of the way he operates wouldn't just lead to burnout and there have been the odd match where they have looked like it's just got gone too far for them but overall it's been a masterstroke they have they have kept their energy levels going where many clubs have fallen down in that particular area you know, they've just looked knackered and Leeds haven't because they've been training so much but I don't I don't I don't see how it gets better than that unless you start tweaking it somehow um And I don't think you do that with Bielsa. And I don't think you're going to get five years out of Bielsa either. So also, I can't see if he did leave, who could come in and command that system with that authority. And then it would start to fracture and that intensity would fall away and then the whole thing would fall apart. So the answer is I don't know, because I think they want him to stay. And if they got him for two years, they would celebrate. But I don't know how that would help with the five-year plan at all. Gregor, what do you think? Five-year plan at Leeds? 
I think a five-year plan is is very difficult with Bielsa uh, in the dugout. I agree with Alison on that, but I would have to say that I think the whole burnout narrative needs to be thrown in the bin now, because Leeds. Uh, there's a nugget in Bill's Bill's column this morning. Leeds will play forty games in all competitions this season, which is the fewest in their history, and obviously that's probably to do with their cup runs. But they did this in the Championship. And there was no reason to believe that when you play fewer games in the Premier League that they would suffer from burnout. And yes, Bielsa has had all the, the, those issues in the past, but you know, sports science has improved. Leeds showed no evidence, I don't think, of burnout at any point. They 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 suffered perhaps with a little bit of you know cope dealing with the pressure uh, in his first season when they fell to to Derby County in the playoffs. I don't think anything had anything to do with burnout. So I think. We need to part of that now, personally. Um, but I agree, it's very hard to look at too far into the future with Bielsa, and it's it's almost impossible to think about a succession plan as well, because who you know who succeeds this this guy. Um, but what you have to say is it's just been brilliant to watch, and this was a very different way f- that we saw a Leeds United team win a game of football. Very rarely do you see them, I think, in the second half. They had 21% possession um, and 96 passes to Man City's 345. And there was <laughs> another Bill Nugget um, that John Stone's average position was higher than any any Leeds player on the park, <laughs> any starting Leeds player. So Man City's centre half was further forward than any Leeds player in his average position throughout the game. Um, but they defended brilliantly. They kind of you know, so many men behind the ball, but close, very few spaces for Manchester United to exploit between them. And always they have that energy and the kind of desire and willing to run forward. And that's where Stuart Dallas got the goal from. Stuart Dallas is kind of epitome of what Bielsa has done. This guy who was a kind of, I played against him when he was at Brentford in League One. And he was, you know, he was a good player, a good winger. But now he's, he's a kind of all action. You, you don't even know what position he is. He can play anywhere. And that's kind of, that's kind of what, Bielsa has done to this team. They're all they're all supremely fit, you know, mentally strong as well. And I, you know, I, I I don't know. It's hard, it's very hard to when you're talking about what's what's next. You could say aim for Europe. Then there might be an issue of burnout. <laughs> they would need a bigger squad. Uh, I don't know if that would be a good thing. And I don't think it's. I don't really think it's realistic just now. I just think if in the next couple of years they st- they maintain the kind of top ten and maybe even have that aspiration of going to that, and they probably do need to start looking at beyond at some point but again I'll say it again who's going to follow Bielsa if I was a Leeds fan I, I wouldn't know how to feel 16 years out of the Premier League will, will of course have caused its scars but it's still Leeds United and they will remember some of the great sides that they have had they will they will want they will expect the club to have high ambitions won't they Gregor yeah but I don't think they're going to be unrealistic about it either I don't think they'll expect that to happen immediately Perhaps in five years' time, yeah, they would think we should be, you know, there's new investment coming to the club. They think we should be in a position, if we can consolidate in the next couple of years and improve every year, to be, you know, pushing on for European football. And I don't think that should be unrealistic for a club like Leeds United. But if you're asking how how, how a Leeds United fans should feel this season, then I think thrilled is the word you're looking for. They're blooming finally back in the Premier League. They're playing some of the most enjoyable football to watch of any club in the Premier League, in my my opinion. They're already safe. They're already past the 40-point mark and and uh, they can look to 
how they can improve next season. And most importantly, they have proven the journalists on the game podcast wrong and pundits alike up and down the country too. So of course, they will have the last laugh and enjoy their summers. Of course they will. By the way, you can read Tony Cascarino's analysis of the weekend, an intelligent Leeds win on the Times app right now. Really good read uh, from the former Millwall and Republic of Ireland striker. Now to the championship. There isn't long to go for all the teams to state their case for a place in next season's Premier League, much like Leeds last year. Uh, Norwich City will soon be promoted automatically. Second place Watford have had an incredible run of 11 wins in 13 games. That gives them a nine-point cushion with five games to play. So it means four teams out of five will be in the playoffs, most likely. Brentford, Swansea, Barnsley, Bournemouth or Reading will make up the playoffs. There is a seven-point gap between Reading and Cardiff back in eighth. Uh, At the weekend, Swansea recovered from four straight defeats to win. Brentford won after four straight draws. Bournemouth have now won four on the bounce, and all of that means seven points separate the five teams we're discussing with five or six games to play. Greg, at the end of the EFL season, what is that like? What is that most about? We've got to look at the run-ins of some of these teams, I think. But more, more than anything, it's kind of coping with the pressure. And some it always goes down to the final last couple of games and who can handle best handle the pressure there. You know, there often there's more more teams involved in, than this. And I think we are really looking at, as you, as you say, probably five, five, five teams trying to find four places for the playoffs. Um, well, having said that, you've got... <laughs> you think Watford are kind of home and dry, but you look at their run and they've still got... Norwich and they play Brentford and Swansea in the last two games of the season so it's not beyond the realms that they could still be caught um, but for me the, the the team we spoke of them um, a while back this team that is still kind of blowing us away really is our Barnsley and you could add, add Neil Warnock to the to the roll call of of uh, managers and players opposition managers and players who have We've been a little bit tetchy in post-match uh, press conferences after playing Barnsley this season. I think someone, someone in the uh, the local media, you know, suggested that that Barnsley, you know, the Barnsley play very direct, and Ishmael calls it vertical football, and they're you know one of the most high-intense pressing teams in the country. Um, but they are very direct, and it was put to Neil Warnock if if there was any similarities between this Barnsley team and his successful uh, Sheffield United team and I think it was 2005-06 and he said <laughs> he said you've got you've got to be he said I'm not being funny but this Barnsley back three make Chris Morgan look like Franz Beckenbauer um, <laughs> if you remember with Chris Morgan he was certainly not like Franz Beckenbauer but at the same time he was he said you know he played for Barnsley and he was saying I would love them to go up and ruffle a few feathers because they would and the thing is about you know Barnsley look like they've never got a five point cushion to, to seventh They've beaten a lot of these teams now recently. They beat Brentford at the start of this run. I think they've won they've won eleven of the last sixteen and lost once in that time. And the start of that was beating Brentford, who were unbeaten in twenty one games or something like that at that point in time. They've beaten Bournemouth uh, at Bournemouth. Um, they are so hard to play against. And as I say, every week the, the opposition team, a player or manager, comes out and says this is like something different to what we're used to seeing and they're running so hard. You could ask if there's a case of a possibility of burnout there too, but they're all very young lads. And as we mentioned before, every week they make five substitutions. They change their whole front three. They are boxing very clever. So Barnsley are the joker in the pack here and they're, you know, imagine Barnsley, you know, 
all these teams, Liverpool and whatnot, visiting Oakwell next season and getting a taste of their own medicine. Rock, uh, the <laughs> so, you know, heavy metal football. Brilliant. I think it'd be great if it happens. I think it'd just be one of the stories of the season, football season in of any division. I just think I, I saw them play against uh, QPR a month or so ago, and it was like being mugged, basically. And I, I don't mean that in, to, in any way to sort of sound derogatory. It was, you know, they were just brutal. Um, they just smashed QPR out of the way at times. But, you know, as someone who was brought up on John Beck's Cambridge, um, you know, I, I sort of, I, I did see echoes in, you know, that team... Because there was some, yeah, the directness can be a thrill as well. You know, there there will be people who get sniffy about them. There will, there are people who've got sniffy about them in the championship. There'll there'll be people who get sniffy about them if they do go up. But it is about you know the game. You are you are allowed to play different ways. You don't all have to be you know dream of being Pep. You don't um, you know you can use uh, physicality. That was the, the great. Um, skill of of Bex Cambridge United was the physicality and method was allied with with top players for that level. Dion Dublin was you know an exceptional striker for you know an upwardly mobile team as he proved. You know there were others. Steve Claridge was was another, and it was smart recruitment finding smart recruitment to a method of working out what is going to work for your team, and then uh, uh, basically you know having that plan in mind and the players all knowing it and understanding it and believing it and uh, I, yeah I, I mean I know Gregor's leading the the Barnsley fan club but you'll 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 you know you'll, you'll find me not far behind just because I think there's a certain you know in in a time when we do see every team you know and actually QPR try to do this themselves sort of ape trying to be pep football you know trying to play it out from the back and there is a there, it, it's just nice to see a completely different style. Um, I'll say, I'll say, nice. It, um, if say it felt pretty brutal, <laughs> yeah, watching, as long as you're not on the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> being on the end, being on the end of it. But there, are, you know, we, the, the, the good thing about football is that there is never any fixed. You know, there, there should never be a fixed orthodoxy. We get trends, but it's great to see someone you know, buck that trend. There's another B in the championship we should talk about, or the Bs to be specific. Brentford, who lost to Fulham in the playoff final last year, actually beaten on the final day by none other than Barnsley, which meant they missed out on automatic promotion. But after that playoff final, their manager, Thomas Frank, promised that there would be a side that competed this season for promotion once again. Um it's an interesting one because talking about clever recruitment, Brentford have used pretty much a, a money ball system over the last sort of five, six years to bring in great players who have gone on to great things. We talk about Ollie Watkins, of course, Saeed Benrahma that was got, that got sold to West Ham in the summer as well. And they've managed to fill in for those players and be right in the hunt once again, this time for the playoffs, um, probably more realistic, but they've got Millwall at home, Cardiff at home, Bournemouth away before Rotherham, and Watford at home in an away trip to Bristol City on the final day. It looks like they're going to make it into the playoffs as well. But last year, we were talking about them being the fantastic story, Alison, about promotion to the Premier League, new stadium and stuff like that. Um, do, you, do you think it's possible that they come to the Premier League this time around? And what sort of story would that be? If you treat the film Groundhog Day as real life, which I do, because it's my <laughs> favourite film of all time, the, the, the repetition does one day end. They've failed at the playoff stage nine times. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And they'll, they'll probably be thinking, oh, no, it's going to happen again. But at some point, you know, the nightmare ends and they'll wake up and um, 
it'll be a different view from the from the bedroom window. They'll be in the Premier League. And I think we need to see them in the Premier League, actually, because you've 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 hinted at how well run they are. I, d- I just it's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that you can lose players of the stature of Ollie Watkins and Ben Rama and yet still score goals because they recruit so well. Ivan Tony's just been like hit the ground running. Yep, they can keep on doing it, keep on doing it. Thomas Frank is a really impressive manager. He's very intelligent, very calm. He's one of those people that you can ask any question of and he'll take it seriously and think it through. He's just, the players adore him. Uh, He's just very, he's just very impressive. And I think we need to see what they can do in the Premier League. And it's just not fair for a club to get that close so often and do it while playing very attractive football and yet just fall just fall at the final hurdle. Um, there's also the small matter that I can cycle to Brentford. So I'm really keen for them to come up. <laughs> of course, all the important reasons why we want teams to do well. And Matt, just on promotion to the Premier League this season, it's going to be the most important one yet, isn't it? All the losses that would have come with the pandemic could be covered by the hundred million plus pounds you get for finishing bottom in the Premier League next year. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Championship's been a, a sort of enjoyably compelling basket case of a sort of division, you know, for, for many years now. Uh, but this year, obviously, financially, has, you know, been horrendous losses for, for a lot of clubs. I think, you know, there's there's the sort of sense of a bit of an iceberg sort of financially, um, given the... Uh, outgoings and the ambitions of of some of the clubs and yeah the outlay that they can't they can't cover so yeah you're right the prize sort of feels more tantalizing than ever um and then obviously what you do with that prize we've seen totally different models you know seeing some clubs go up and try and splurge i think more recently we've seen more clubs try and do it like a norwich and just basically decide that they're you know they're in that sort of yo-yo zone and they're not going to overcommit but that does mean that if they do come back down they're they're well equipped they're not sort of you know if there's no fire sale you know they're they're they keep manager in charge they keep most of the players and you can see how Norwich are uh, are benefiting from that now so but yeah you're right in in a time of of you know financial well, if not quite Armageddon, then certainly huge fears out there uh, to to get the minimum, you know, 150 million quid. Uh, yes, those that I mean, I, I don't think there's any game quite like the Championship playoff final for for a lot of reasons, and um, it's going to feel as big this season as ever. Two of the teams who you would say that uh, kind of matters for most uh, are Bournemouth and Reading. Yeah, Bournemouth's financial picture is not particularly <laughs> good because they were so heavily reliant, more so than than any kind of Premier League club on the on the the TV revenues. So I was really shocked when uh, Jonathan Woodgate was given that that job, but he seems to seems to have done something in in recent weeks. And Reading have been up there all season too with Lechko Paunovic, who who came in in the summer and got some really good young talents. Michael Elise, um Omar Richards, left back who. Is, looks due to be going to, to Bayern Munich in the summer. Um, they've, they've, you know, I've got some really good young, talented players there, and I, I feel like if they don't, if they weren't to go up this season, then there could be a bit of a fire sale there in, in the summer too. So, and I think that's probably true for Bournemouth too. They would have to start to to cut their wage bills seriously. So, those two clubs in particular, uh, you know, Brentford are, are run a bit more intelligently. Swansea have kind of cut their cloth accordingly since they've. Since they've come in, they uh, fall into the championship. Uh, Barnsley have got one of the lowest wage bills in the division, 
and they're running slightly more like in the kind of the way that Brentford are. But Bournemouth and Reading are the, the epitome of the kind of boom and bust, uh, huge overspend on wages. And as I say, if they they don't go up the season, then I think they will, you know, they will they'll feel the effect of it. Who do you think would do best in the Premier League? out of Brentford, Swansea, Barnsley, Bournemouth or Reading? I think Brentford would be, you know, I think Tony's a player, I know one Premier League manager at least is kicking themselves for not going for Tony when um, when he moved last last year. And I think, you know, he's he looks ready to to adapt. I, I think I think they've got a smart manager, as Alison says. I, I think, you know, I think it would be tough, but I think, you know, I would like to see them in there. But I would like to, you know, the Barnsley... That sort of element of, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise given that everyone can see them play and, but you still have to face it. Yeah, you know, that's the team I would like to see. Just back to that point of difference. I would just want to see, I want to see how it gets on. I want to see, I want to see how, and yeah, I'd like to hear lots of sort of sniffy managers talk about it, hopefully after they've been beaten. So, you know, I, I, whether that style could survive, interesting, but I'd love to, I'd love to see them try. Alison? Well, Brentford already beaten this season four Premier League clubs in the cup competition so you know they're untested unlike some of the clubs you've listed but in terms of recent pedigree and the fact they're well run I think you've got to say you know they wouldn't do dreadfully would they it's going to be a full house isn't it Gregor yeah, well, I'm kind of like Matt. I think the team I would love to see are Barnsley, which I'm sure you could probably clean yourselves. And uh, <laughs> I think Brentford would probably equip themselves the best. I think Steve Cooper is someone who's got real potential mm. as well. And I think they would need more investment. But the, you know, Swansea have at times played some good football this season. And until kind of not so long ago, they were really, you know, superb defensively. So he he, he knows how to set up a team. And I think I think probably he will be managing the Premier League in the coming years. So. Swansea, no, Brentford. If I have to pick one, I think Brentford would do the best. We're all agreed then, are we? We are all agreed. It's the perfect tone with which to end this uh, (laughs) podcast this week with a message to Tom Clark, of course, that we're all getting along, just so he knows. Um, The playoffs have been confirmed while we've been talking as well. The Championship get the action underway on Monday, the 17th of May. The first legs in all three divisions will be completed by Thursday, the 20th of May. The playoffs semi-finals take place between the 21st and the 23rd of May. Three fixtures from the Championship and League One on Saturday, the 22nd of May. And then the final weekend at Wembley takes place across the Maybank holiday, the Championship on Saturday the 29th of May, League One on the 30th and the League Two finale on Monday the 31st. Why are you shaking your head, Gregor? Because then the Euros start 10 days later. Imagine some of these guys. You know, it's been a season like no other. If you're a player playing in those playoffs and then you're going to the Euros as well, good luck to you. Good luck to you. (laughs) Yeah, that's the final message from Gregor Robertson on that note. There is one final message, isn't there, for all those players that are exhausted, and that is cheese is cheese. (laughs) cheese is cheese bread is bread that should get them through that basic diet more than enough Uh, thank you for being with me matt dickinson gregor robertson and alison rudd and for you for listening as well remember you can get yourself a digital subscription to the times and the sunday times you can get it uh, on all of your devices of course with all of our award-winning journalism sign up today you'll get yourself one month free just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started and of course if you're enjoying the podcast hit that subscribe button you won't miss any of our episodes throughout the season we'll see you on thursday <laughs> <laughs>